welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Of all the big fish stories that Robert Ramos heard while out fishing, the one that caught his attention was about sharks. Shark fishing, to be exact. Robert grew up on Miami Beach, going fishing with his family. But the South Beach of today is very different than the one of the 1970s and the 1980s, the one with the pier on the southern tip, dominated by shark fishermen. 95% of the people that live on Miami Beach now are transient or just showed up on Miami Beach. They have no idea what it was back then. We thought that we actually owned that beach. They were a wild bunch, territorial like gangs, and the only thing they cared about was catching the biggest shark. Robert tells the stories of these fishermen and this time in the film South Beach Shark Club. It's streaming now on Amazon's Prime Video and other apps. Robert uses colorful historic footage to recreate this time. He also interviews those fishermen decades later. We meet a cast of characters with names like Hammer, Seaweed, and Seaweed Jr., the film also shows the evolution of shark fishing and how our culture views sharks. We see it go from a blood sport to more of an appreciation. We also see Miami Beach change. To talk to us about his film is Robert Riquejo Ramos. Welcome, Robert. Hey, how's it going, Carlos? It's great, man. I wish, I wish folks could be in the studio here, not just to view you, but to let's peer past into the control room where there is a man in a shark costume in a fabric shark costume, he's giving us the thumbs up, and that's one of your buddies who was helped promoting the film. Correct. He's helping with the guerrilla marketing, which is kind of like, you know, in a sense, uh, goes back into the film. It's like, you know, the whole community came out to make this film. We're making a film about the community of Miami Beach, and all these people have showed out to help promote it and rally around it and be a part of it. So Yeah, well, I, I would think that guy walking around in a shark, shark costume either will get people's attention or people will run from that guy. So. <laughs> Either one gets gets people's attention. Absolutely. So tell me about this. This idea started with some fishing trips that you guys used to do as part of like what you used to do, right? But yeah. it's, it started with a legendary trip with your Uncle George. Yeah, it did start as a legendary trip with my Uncle George. You could say. Um, we kind of impulsively went down for a long weekend to the Keys in his truck with no real plan other than to just get out there and catch some fish. So um, yeah, we parked up around Sunshine Key and... You know, loaded, unloaded the rods, got a couple cold beers and started fishing on the bridge, caught some snappers. We're out there all night just trading stories, making each other crack up. And <laughs> yeah, he just like went on this rant as he usually does after a couple beers <laughs> and <laughs> and started just telling me these stories about his old friend, Renee, uh, who was a guy who I got to meet back in the day, who was a larger than life personality. Has You know, if you see the movie, you, you've heard some of the stories about him. And um, his, it's a Rene de Dios. His name is Rene de Dios. And he was like a like. Like I said, a larger-than-life figure on Miami Beach, kind of a local legend. And, yeah, um, so he started just inspiring me to, uh, to, like, kind of think of these stories in terms of a film. And, like, cinematically, I just felt like naturally they had that kind of appeal to them. So um, a couple days later, I was going down the rabbit hole of the Internet, as you do. And, <laughs> You're um, like, who is this guy? Yeah, yeah. and there were, I found all these forums. One of them in particular was South uh, Florida Shark Club. Uh, which is a website run by William Fandora, who's also in the movie. And there was just all this archival photography and really cool just accounts, like personal accounts and stories of Renee 
and other like legendary catches on Miami Beach and the history of Miami Beach at large. And so I just kind of like went down that rabbit hole and one thing led to another. I was a student at Miami-Dade College mm-hmm. and exploring their archival database, which is just, I mean, it's massive. And there is so much cool niche um, things in there from different news stations and home videos over the years. And so I found uh, some specific videos that just were about Rene, that, where he was giving interviews that were like really unique uh, 1970s, uh, you know, capturing Miami Beach in that time when there wasn't really a whole lot going on there. So that was like a big story for like a local place. Like this guy who's a shark fisherman catches this big shark and everyone's like, you know, just it's kind of a big deal, right? Like it's a, it's this sleepy part of town. That's all retirement homes and not a lot of people are going to South beach. Sure. And I think your footage does a really good job. The the footage you found and the way you stitched it together with, with your narrative at placing you at this time and this place where everything slows down and it's so unlike the South Beach that we know now, right? And especially if you didn't grow up during that time, you really slow everything down. And so what it would mean for some guy to catch a 15-foot shark, yeah. you know, off the coast of the beach. Sure, that and that in itself, you know, made him that local, like, celebrity. It's like he's like a folklore hero of of Miami Beach from back then. And so that's what also attracted all these uh, young people to kind of follow him almost like you know, the Pied Piper in like a direction that we don't really know, like, you know, where this is going to end up almost too. like, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? But either way, it's like kind of like this uh, misdirected youth who needed, they needed like a father figure in their life. And that's kind of like what Rene provided from them. And that's what, you know, he represented as a leader on that pier as like, you know, a guy who had all the bravado and was really, you know, just, uh, I mean, of just a force on that pier. He was, right. you know, a personality that was larger than life that people were attracted to. They wanted to hear his stories. They wanted to be around him. You know, they were learning something, but also, you know, towing the line between like danger and and you know maybe learning some kind of skill. Well, you get the sense, right, that it was part of this subculture that was like skaters, surfers. And shark fishermen. It's almost like this this little tiny niche, mm-hmm. and all these people kind of were interchangeable with one another. You know, the, the surfers were skating and sh- uh, shark fishing, and and they were all kind of a little bit like like disaffected youth, like a little bit of like latchkey type of kids. It's 100%. a time where where they were kind of on their own. They were totally on their own. It seemed like, and like you know, you'll hear it in some of the interviews. It's like you know, my parents worked all day. They weren't around, and so what did you do? I mean. Um, I just saw it yesterday, just even, and I'd love to see this still around because there's these little pieces of it that are still alive. I live in North Beach, which I love to live there. It's like the last iteration of like Miami Beach living with still mom and pop shops. And, you know, there are kids running around on skateboards with a surfboard under their arm and then a fishing rod under the other arm. And like, that's like what it's all about. Right. So tell me about uh, a little bit about the connection, right? So your your uncle George is the one that started telling you these stories. So how did they meet? How did they know each other? Was he part of that that group of like kind of like troublemaker kids a little bit? Yeah, my uncle is what they used to call back then a 14th Streeter. He grew up on like Española Way. My father as well. My dad went into the Navy, and so like he left for a little bit. And so like I guess uh, my uncle is a little bit more of a part of it. But there's just all this group of like all the youths who are kind of like you know skipping school maybe hanging out with the wrong crowd, but like also like, you know, bringing home fish to their parents so they can cook dinner right. and like, you know, or sell lobsters and dive off the pier and do that kind of thing. So it definitely like had some kind of attractiveness to them. Everyone was, you know, bound together by the water and living that kind of lifestyle. Like, you know, 
product of your environment. And back then, the way that environment was was just like the way like you know I was captivated by it because it just seems like it's so free. And you know I grew up on the water, in the water, being a local Miami Beach native, and you know I just romanticize that time when I hear those stories. So there's a number of stories that I heard even growing up. And I even met Renee a couple times as a kid. And, you know, just seeing, flipping through a fisherman's photo album, you know, right. back when people still had photo albums. Right. But that was a big thing. Like, even when I started fishing, the first thing you want to do is put together a little photo album with like all your cool catches and like, you know, hanging out in different places, whether it be in the Keys or if you get lucky enough to go to the Bahamas or the pier in South Beach or right. things like that. Well, your film does this really interesting job of, of painting what that subculture was like, but then it also does something bigger, which it kind of, ex it, it makes you think about, how do I think about this when I look back on it? Because it's it's a bit of a time capsule. So there's these scenes of these inc this incredibly large sharks being caught. And there was part of me that was like, these guys killed a lot of sharks. Yeah. These guys caught and killed a lot of sharks. And it's like, it's dissonant, right? To, sure. to like our conservation culture now. And tell me a little bit about that, about seeing that and kind of weighing that in your own mind, you know? Sure. It's interesting. I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, like, I think that, well, I definitely think that shark conservation is really important. And I, you know, as a fisherman myself, I've never really targeted or killed the shark or anything like that. But I was still always fascinated by the idea behind, like, why these people do that. It's like, it's really like a test of endurance and it's just it's just fascinating i think people it's kind of like old man in the sea or you know um captain ahab in search of the white whale it's something that you have to be really obsessive it takes a really unique personality to go out and do that so i was you know an anthropology major initially and i was more interested i think in the people and what drove them and kind of the whole culture that surrounded them um in the film we do touch on uh conservation quite briefly at the end of it i wanted to tell it linearly and i didn't want that to be i thought it was taking away from like the overall narrative and the characters themselves like so uh, there is the, that there is that moment which yeah. I thought was interesting where you see that reckoning where they're like you know maybe we he's like we will we'll, we do things differently now sure. even some of those guys that were like the the younger ones that grew up doing yeah. that were like oh this is probably this is not cool yeah we're doing this one of the now. interesting things too that I was told and I don't think it made it exactly into the movie but um, you know, one of the guys who's like a captain now, Jesse Brayshaw, he was like, you know, most of the time we didn't really catch anything. That mm. We were just out there hanging out. <laughs> like, right. So right. even though it may seem like that they're like, we painted it in a way to make them look like they were kind of like rock stars. Or they were like in their own right, because that's how they were in their closed circle, like to each other at least. So um, most of the time it's just about hanging out on the beach and, you know, making a fire and you know, drinking a beer or two and just trading stories and having a good time being out there in the elements, you know, smelling the salt water, getting your feet wet, like putting yourself in a situation that could, you know, be an adrenaline rush and make you feel alive. And I think having that community uh, around everyone. Uh, back in the 70s, there was a lot of long lining done by some of the local fisheries up the Miami River. I won't say exactly any names, but um, and they said that there was a lot less sharks back then even. So mm. I don't know, you know, what the the marine biology studies are on that exactly but it is it's it's interesting like i said they they said they actually didn't even catch that many a lot of times so and you you do also do a good job of of painting that a little bit like there is that big game hunter big yeah. game hunter type of feel to the thing sure. so put me in that place like when you know they'd go 6 hours without just kind of sitting on the water line hasn't moved and then all of a sudden they 
catch something. Yeah, I I think that it's interesting because you know when you go out and make a film, uh, I was trying to capture that the the essence of that and you know what that feels like and that can be really boring for a movie you're literally sitting around eight hours <laughs> watching paint dry yeah. watching waiting to not catch fish right but the second that that line goes out and you just hear that little tick 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 like that it's just like a crazy adrenaline rush and so there's like even you see in the movie like our producers running with a flashlight just like running towards the rod to help in some way like you just lose your mind our guest today is robert riquejo ramos his documentary, South Beach Shark Club, tells the story of Miami Beach shark fishermen in the 1970s and 1980s. So I want to draw a little bit of a picture of what it was like for you growing up. Like, I mean, obviously you're, you've gotten your life into film, but you kind of, you moved around a little bit, right? Um, talk to me about um, the creatives in your life that kind of inspired you. Like, who were the people in your life creating things? Man, well, my mom was a public school teacher growing up, first of all, so... Um, I mean, and she was also, she also had a ballet studio, uh, around the time that I was born. And so she was in the arts for a long time and a big, uh, enthusiast about, you know, uh, about art in general, grew up going to a lot of museums, watching a lot of films, maybe some films that I shouldn't have seen at the age that I saw them at. Like, you know, <laughs> like what? Like she gave me like, you know, like David Lynch, Blue Velvet when I was like 14, you know? <laughs> Anything with David Lynch, uh, too young will break just, a person. That blew my mind though, also too, in a way that. You know, it, it. I was already like just naturally gravitating towards making films with like the family camcorder, as you hear, mm -hmm. you know, in a lot of these uh, stories of filmmakers or actors and stuff. And nothing different from that. I was making a lot of sketch comedy. I grew up watching like a lot of SNL, right, and things like that, like classic, like nineteen seventies SNL, like really good stuff. But um, yeah, um, did so that she... did that really lead to? Uh, because then, then there's this other side, right? Like. Were there who were the fishermen in your life? Like, what was your well, what was your ocean life? Because you grew up well, on the beach as a beach kid is yeah, much different so, than like a, a Kendall or a Coral Gables. Yeah, kid. I think this is the intersection of like you know of my life as you know my perceived life as like almost like going into like marine biology or something. I was obsessed with fish growing up, hmm. and I was obsessed with the ocean, and then also just had this other interest in like playing music and making films. So. How were you? Where you how are you obsessed with fish? Were you just like catching them, taking them I home? I think the and, uh, first thing I told you know when you ask like you have you have your kid and you're like oh well what do you want to do? I was like I want to be a fish doctor, which I'm not, you know I just <laughs> did I, I just I wanted to I used to keep aquariums growing up. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, you know I've worked on charter boats. I worked as a diver in the Keys for a while. So I've had these different lives. Like you know um, initially when I got out of high school, I I was playing in a band and, you know, we were trying to make it playing music. We grew up playing Churchill's down here. I moved to LA to basically just, you know, busk for music, <laughs> busk for money right. on Venice Beach and just live the quote unquote art lifestyle out you, there. You disconnected a little bit. Like, yeah. like you really tried to, you were finding your way a lot. Uh, yeah, definitely. And I was going to film school out there too. And I took a lot of my film theory classes out there and I really wanted to be a writer. And what I realized is I really didn't have anything to write about in a way. And I think at that age, that's common uh, for someone who wants to be a writer. And so I kind of took, I took a lot of time off and ended up working uh, out of Bud and Mary's in the Keys, which is in itself just a landmark of uh, Island Mirada in the Keys. And I started doing aquaculture, which was like diving and cultivating live rock for fish tanks. Um, it's hard to explain how I got that job, but <laughs> that would lead me to becoming a licensed captain and from there, uh, actually got a job on, while I was in captain school, uh, sea school, I got a job off Craigslist and I got to, I got to go to Italy and work on a boat for three months out there. So that was like, 
Oh, so you were you were headlong into like living living that salt life, so to speak. You like you really yeah. wrapped your 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 time and your time around that. Sure, I think that there was like a lot of things that interested me about it. Like it just made me, uh, you know, I grew up. I got my diving permit when I was like fourteen. Oh, same. I remember. I went on the last day for the last dive, and it was a really bad day. It was like really. Would you do was, your first dive? Um, do you I remember? was yeah, I was somewhere off of Key Biscayne. Uh, my my diving instructor was David A. Nay. He was a former Navy. Uh, I think it was like a Navy SEAL or something. But he was like you know kind of a <laughs> he, he was he was he was a great diving instructor. But yeah, he was definitely hard in his ways. Um, so on the last dive of the day, I was the last one down the rope, and I didn't go. Like, I freaked out. I panicked. Oof. I got back on the boat. I uh, was really sad about it. I went home. My mom had gotten me, like, you know, like a little present, like a DVD or something. I think it was, like, an Adam Sandler DVD. And, and like I was like... Like, I, it's a graduation, like yeah, a dive was, school graduation I, I gift. I felt so guilty and just so, like, I didn't know, like, you know, what happened. But it started to make me kind of explore what that fear meant and so i did go back like two weeks later i got my diving permit but later on in you know my early 20s when i had this opportunity to dive for a living i was like let me face this head on and like go into it so i would so i would dive you know once a week for you know three years well you really you you faced your fears so to speak yeah and you know um it didn't matter some days it was the most beautiful day in the world and you couldn't even it was just like you know a a utopia was just heaven Uh, you know like just crystal clear visibility and you know being around all the fish and all the beautiful coral and the rock and everything and like just it, it was incredible and there were certain fish like you almost get to know them there's territorial groupers and stuff like that and then some days it was like a washing machine and <laughs> you don't have a choice you yeah. have to go and you have to you have to do the job so that inspired me a lot just in my life generally to you know to take you know some kind of risk and to jump into the fear and you know so somebody who was like uh who felt like you wanted to create but were you were lacking life experience. Sure. Like being on a boat and diving and meeting people and leading diving tours and fishing, I guess, boat captain tours. Like you started building up that life experience to create. Sure. And one of the big ones was also I was saying, you know, I got this job working in the med. I'd never been to Europe before. I never had an opportunity to go and travel like that. But I got on a boat and had this really like... What did you do? What what was that like? It wasn't a great job. I mean, I was like, you know, essentially a deckhand and I was like, you, you know, cleaning the engine room for seven days a week. Like, I mean, doing like the teak and um, like just bringing this boat up to speed because uh, this very wealthy gentleman uh, was trying to sell that boat in some kind of, tr- it was just kind of bizarre, really. I mean, yeah. he wanted to trade that boat for another boat. I guess this is what really rich people do. So he was, tra- <laughs> he was trading this 80 foot yacht for a 120 foot yacht and we had to go like... Uh, from uh, Porto Antico in Genova in Italy, which, you know, that was my first experience of Europe was like <laughs> just working this like, you know, kind of blue collar job on a boat to like we went to Monaco and then to Nice. And like, you know, then we like and we traded the boats and then we had like, you know, different people coming in, distinguished guests and stuff like that. So you so, really got to see it from a, a totally different perspective. Yeah. And that would lead into like so many other boating endeavors. I worked as a charter captain. I had my own charter business. I did boat deliveries to all over the Caribbean fishing diving all around the caribbean things like that from here to puerto rico to dominican republic taking boats literally from you know right here in biscayne bay all the way to dr it's like there's something really special about that too it kind of just totally blows your brain up were there moments uh, there that really that you think back that were really formative for you moments that you really remember like that was particularly interesting or scary and it really 
formed me? Yeah, I mean, it, particularly this one that I was just kind of describing here, like we did a really slow troll a trip from here to uh, Puerto Plata in Dominican Republic. I think, it, I believe it took us three and a half days. We went like at a jogging pace, <laughs> like wow. seven on the knots. Ocean for three and a half days yeah. on a fishing boat. Yeah, it wasn't a fishing boat. It was like a 60 foot trawler okay. and they brought me on board. Um, the owner of the boat um, had a dog and I, you know, there was two captains that they were going to take the boat down there and he was concerned about the dog. He's like, I think we should get a third guy. So I got, I got on that boat and they were like, you have a captain's license? I was like, yeah. Like, all right, well, you're driving all the way down then with us too. On the first day I got on there, I was like, all right, cool. Like this, this is going to be an experience. So, you know, we did like, we drove down there in shifts at seven knots, six hours on, six hours at watch, six hours off. And, you know, do engine room checks. We have like a night vision, like to make sure we don't run the boat up on like the reef or something, crossing the the Bahama Banks. And it was just some really cool stuff. And, you know, it, my dream now, especially after doing a, lot, a, a number of different trips like that is like, I want to go like, all the way to Brazil. <laughs> It'll be really cool. If you look it out on the chart, it's not it's not as crazy as you think. At first, I was, somebody proposed a trip like that to me. I was like, that's just completely insane. Like, there's no way. But um, it, it can be done. And it can be done probably in, you know, a pretty safe way right. for the most part. Were there moments when you were doing that where you were like, this is... This is un- this is not safe. Or this is yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, always of course, especially during at night. Like you're running through the night, it's very dangerous, you know. So you're just like praying for like when you have the night shift driving, you're just like praying for the sun to come up, and like wow. so that so that you could just like have like you know so so you could see what's so you going see on. What you're doing, <laughs> yeah. right? So um, I was really happy when I wasn't driving in the night shift, and when I was driving in the night shift. Um, yeah, it was just like you're very alert and you try to just, you know, do your best to make sure nothing goes wrong. <laughs> were there, what, what were moments there that made, did any of them strike you as like, this would make a good movie? Like, did you start thinking <laughs> cinematically? I had a couple ideas like that this weekend. That, that Some things I did this weekend would have made a great movie, actually. But, so those <laughs> things I, happen. Should I even ask you about that? Or Absolutely is that going to get not. our FCC license revoked? I mean, yeah, it might. It might. We'll, we'll save that for like another day. Our guest today is Robert Riquejo Ramos. His documentary, South Beach Shark Club, tells the story of Miami Beach shark fishermen in the 1970s. It's streaming on several platforms now. So you get to this point where you cross these two interests, right? Like you've spent now, what, how how long? How many years working on ocean type of things? I want to say it was about four years, probably. Four years. I mean, and these four years doing heavy labor, laborious type jobs where you're really all over the world. Yeah. Um, And then tell me about returning to this idea of storytelling because you said that you know you have a creative background your mom had a ballet school this idea that you always wanted to be a storyteller sure um it's interesting so i think that like what i was saying in my early 20s i got jaded with being a broke artist and then in my mid to late 20s i got jaded with you know working on boats and then so i came back i came back and uh I decided to enroll in MDC, I think for like the third time, fourth time. Miami-Dade, okay, came back to it, all right. Yeah, and uh, you know, I wasn't even aware that there was a film program at North Campus, which is excellent, and I want to give a big shout out to them because they actually, you know, just, I mean, it was was an awesome experience going to Miami-Dade College and all the resources they provided and all the people that I met there, including the faculty and the students, you know, some of them, which I'm working with now, who are, you know, become best friends of mine, and a lot of them who worked on this film who, you know, just made it happen. Um, tell me, tell but, me about how then now you start working on this film, 
How does that begin to open up your your worldview in a different way? Like where those things those things meet, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, cause I I always wanted to be a narrative filmmaker, and I still consider myself as like a narrative filmmaker and a writer and making fiction. And but you know, making this documentary taught me more about writing and narrative filmmaking than anything else. Um, and it was the intersection of you know, it, it was just something that like I felt like my I didn't want in the forefront of my mind, but in my subconscious, everything, this was supposed to be, this is it. This is what it was supposed to be. So, um, and like once we started finding this archival footage and like unearthing the stuff and talking to people, it just felt like this was right. And we had to, we had to make this documentary. So, and it was like the, the, yeah, the combining of both worlds. So there's, there's this moment, right? Like where you're researching and everything is academic, but then you come across names and then you go interview them. Right. So you and then you're actually talking with these characters that you've only seen in historical documents. Yeah. Tell me about what those experiences were like talking with these folks who were these the, the actual figures who lived this. Sure. I mean, some of them well, I was quite close to, like Captain Louie, who uh, was on that boat where they actually flipped the boat while they were like fighting a great white shark, as the story goes. It is a fishtail. I do believe that it actually happened, but that's up for debate. But right. yeah, so, I mean, that's the, that's but, the nature of the yeah, fishtail, right? Even Louis, who actually taught me how to fish when I was a young kid, I never heard anything about that story. Like, that story just popped up out of nowhere. Like, I was reading a news article, and I'm looking at it. I'm like, dude, that's Louis, like, at 26 years old. Like, I'm like, you know. That, if, that's the that's the what, point where you're, this historical research you'd done, it, yeah. it was like stories in the Miami Herald and stuff. Yeah, you start yeah. talking to these first-person sources years yeah. later. Yeah, and I, I mean, this guy, I've also known him and worked with him on boats, and you know, but he never mentioned that story ever. <laughs> so that was right. really cool, too. So talking to him in that level also got, you know, uh, I just got to go deeper with him in a place that I had, had never gone. And I, I didn't even know if he'd want to talk about it because you could imagine it's kind of traumatizing also. But he was he was all into it, you know. <laughs> well, what, tell me about what it was like for these guys to relive this, you know, because you were talking to them about things that hadn't ha- that they hadn't probably talked yeah. about uh, to someone who was willing to listen like that and and. 40 years, 50 years. Sure. And in some ways too, like going back to the last question as well, like uh, some people didn't want to talk about it mm. too. So it was also like getting trust and like going out there and like spending all night on the beach with them fishing, spending two days in the Keys. Like that's what production was like for this. We were like living the life of a shark fisherman or living the life of a land-based fisherman or, you know, or someone who's just like, like JD Hammer in the film. Like he quite literally lives out on, on, on the bridge sometimes for two or three days and just hangs out. And so we were doing that uh, we were doing that with them. I, um, you mentioned some folks who didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. What, what were without naming it? Well, like what were some of their stories and why they didn't, well, weren't interested? Well, even like JD initially, like he was just you know, I guess it's it's just kind of natural. Like you know, you have these strangers show up and just start like where these throw, guys with the camera, right? Yeah, putting cameras in your face and like you know, you don't know if you could trust them. If someone did that to me, I would probably feel the same way. Like so, <laughs> it takes a while and um, like once you see that we have the best intention and you know we did our little proof of concept videos, everything was one little step at a time. You know, you're not gonna make this this movie took us six years to make on and off wow so the short film took about two years and then you know the four years through covid through financial hardship through getting our studio burglarized a number of other stories that could be another documentary in itself um it took six years overall wow but <laughs> what did you learn about these guys like when you look as you went through this process i mean years getting to know them in a different way hearing stories like you said that that you had never heard like wow you guys were on that boat what did you like someone who has not seen the film yet 
summarize them, like what their lives were like, because it sounds like a lot of them were like sometimes unhoused, right? Like yeah. sometimes just choosing a, a, yeah. in other ways. Yeah, south of fifth south of Fifth Street for the longest time was you know Section Eight housing, and it was a lot of like really poor surfers and fishermen, right. and people who fish for a living. A lot of these guys, it's not really touched upon in the movie. Again, we just felt like kind of like with some of the early on conservation stuff in it just we didn't know like how much we wanted to make that part of the narrative but a lot of these guys did depend on fishing for income right. a lot of these guys worked at the miami herald actually is that right for a long long time Doing uh, kinds of jd job. hammer worked at the miami herald forever i think he was in the printing right um and renee did too renee a funny story about renee real quick while i have it on my mind is that renee worked for the miami herald and this is allegedly how the story goes i'm sure they're or you know other versions of this, but he called in sick, and then he won a tournament that the Miami a fishing tournament that the Miami Herald was putting on or sponsoring on the day that he called in sick, so which it, they later wrote a story about. I'm yeah, sure and he got fired. Oh, yeah, did obviously. he really? Yeah, of course. He got, so you can't call in sick. You can't call in sick, <laughs> and then go and win the tournament for the company you're working for. <laughs> like so. But um, yeah, I mean, they, but a lot of these guys depended on that, whether it be the prize money from a tournament or, you know, a lot of them work with researchers from the Rosenthal School of uh, Marine Biology with UM with uh, Dr. Samuel Gruber and uh, also Jose Castro from NOAA. And so, I mean, there was a number of things. Some of them sold fish or sometimes back then sold sharks for um, for crab trap meat and things like that. Or ca- they'd make cat food out of it. All kinds of like bizarre things. That like would be- were, it was it was survival. Like, they, like sure. it, wasn't, it wasn't like, a, you know, a, almost like these, you know, this is a rich guy, big game hunter yeah. type thing. It was uh, most of it was survival. Part of it was that for sure. And the other part I would say is the bravado of it mm. too. Like, because these guys were definitely like you know, trying to one-up each other and kind of, like, be the macho guy, like, oh, I caught the biggest shark, like, I got the record, like, that's what they became obsessed with, and you see that obsession, you know, manifested in Renee primarily, and then also Kevin Pagan, who comes up later in the 90s, who is one of Renee's protégés, and, you know, he catches the biggest shark, that drives Renee to another level to go to the Bahamas and break the world record, and, you know, so there was that too, but initially it started off as, you know, also so they could, like, so they could survive, right? too, so... You you mentioned Rene several times, and he you say early on in the film that he that he dies, uh, so we don't he don't hear from him in the film, uh, not not today obviously. Yeah. Um, but there is this, I think it really tells the story of like how much how important it was to them because he he dies while going out to fish, right? Yeah, I think in some ways the way that we wanted to present it, um, at least in the context of the documentary, is that this is, you know, this is how what the obsession drove Rene too is that he that's you know what he that's all he cared about to the point that you know it literally killed him and like he was in the hospital and he should have stayed there instead he checked himself out to go shark fishing yeah which is just like i mean that that's a testament to obsession if there is one um you know you should be in the hospital after having a stroke and then went back out there to catch one more shark wow so I mean, and, and then alternatively, you have, you know, J.D. Hammer, who is another person who's very obsessed, but just has just kind of looks at the world in a different way, you know, that may be a little bit healthier. We're trying to make that little comparison there yeah. uh, with the two of them. Yeah, you know? with one of them obviously being alive, you know, one not. Yeah. And he's the one that taught, the, you know, I guess you would call Renee the title character because he's really the one that mm-hmm. you guys talk about. But J.D. is the one who taught him how to, yeah. how to shark. J.D.'s fish. like the Gandalf. He's the one, <laughs> you know. I mean, a lot of times we would reference these kinds of like hero's journey things while we were making this movie because it feels like that. You know, and J.D. definitely is that kind of, you know, archetype. So 
Um, JD's the teacher, and he's taught generations of different people, including Renee. You know, Renee was one of his students, but it's the story of the student who goes off the rails, and you've seen that in so many other different stories as well. But that's right. what Renee represents, and that's what JD represents. You know? Right. Talk to me about shark fishing now. Like, uh, is it doesn't? Well, that used to go on in a pier. So part of your movie really changes, talks about the changes in Miami Beach because mm-hmm. there was this long pier at the at the very edge of Government Cut that they knocked down to kind of redevelop the area, which is like the story of Miami Beach, right? It's total redevelopment. Um, that changes that changes the culture immediately, right? Sure. I mean, that pier, uh, as far as like life south of 5th in that era, I mean, that pier was the identity of people who lived down there. You know, I mean, there was a constant wave break because of the way the, the pier was shaped and also because this is before they really dredged and kind of like screwed up the beach there. But... um you know, there was like people who were like, you know, just congregating around the pier all the time for different reasons. Mm. And so that harbored a community of, you know, people who were surfers, skateboarders, fishermen, and just bystanders, tourists, everything. Um, what, what, what did you learn about it? Like, because that's, you know, we all grew up post that happening, you know, uh, after all that happening. What did, like, spending time talking with people about what that area was like, what, what did you learn? I mean, I learned so much. I learned everything that I've said in this interview about it, to be honest. Um, it just, to me, what attracted me so much to it is that communal, those communal elements of it and just how fruitful the pier was and how it gave back to so many people in, in different ways that you couldn't even imagine. Like, you know, my dad still t- stays in touch with the guy who taught him how to fish as a kid, who's in the movie, Captain Eddie. Uh, his name is Chino, his nickname. Everyone has a nickname. But... um. <laughs> But so like, and those, those relationships are so strong. They still like, it's like these people still communicate with each other and you know, you can't, you can't replace like somebody who taught you. It's like for them, like, it, you know, learning how to ride a bike or something, the guy who taught you how to fish, the person who taught you how to surf, you know, and that stuff, like, it's just amazing for, especially for a lot of uh, people who may have been, you know, misdirected otherwise, if they didn't find these, you know little niche things to occupy themselves with and to learn a skill and you know it teaches you something bigger than just that skill it teaches you discipline and i i just like that that was the whole motivation to explore this stuff that was our whole interest like it's just that community right i'm, I'm curious how much of that community still exists regarding also regarding changing rules on shark fishing like how, yeah. how have those rules changed and how has that affected those communities uh, yeah i mean it's it's definitely completely different i think you know a lot of people you know have moved on to other things maybe they don't even shark fish anymore maybe they just fish you know regularly or maybe they don't fish at all and um i'm i'm not really sure i mean you are still allowed to fish from the beach like that uh, all over you know south florida so a lot of the fishing goes on like the bigger shark fishing stuff is in mm-hmm. singer island or like uh up north on the coast and uh like vero beach and areas like that um down here I mean, even the pier they have now is like pretty much unfishable because of the current and government cut. So it doesn't really harbor the same kind of community of like fishermen. Whereas like when I was a kid, we used to go to Newport Pier, um, which is in like Hollandale area. Mm-hmm. And there was still like a lot of like they had, you had that whole community or whatever. You have Papo who fishes on the end of like the <laughs> pier and this guy, it's like, you know, some some guy who's always there with a hoop net catching bait. And like, they're just, and any pier that you go to like that, you're going to find these characters that are just fixtures on that pier like you know they just hang out there all the time so how did you go about finding those guys if that community had broken apart tell me about that process of finding these folks and so so you could tell the stories yeah it was like one thing led to another they were having some kind of tournament tournament i believe it was the big hammer tournament or something that that william fandora puts on and they're having a little cookout 
uh, in a parking lot somewhere. Like they had like a meetup basically. So mm-hmm. that was like the first time that we really put ourselves out there saying that we're making this movie and we filmed some stuff. None of it really made it into the movie, but that was really pivotal for us because it provided an introduction into the world. And, you know, when we started making this thing, just like you do with, uh, with any kind of documentary, it's like you only know, you have an idea of what you think the story is. And then the more you talk to these people, and the more that you experience you know what they have to say and sometimes like literally go out and you know do what they're doing it, it, the narrative changes and then it just it keeps turning 90 degrees every at every turn of the of the filmmaking process so um yeah i, I kind of good no i was gonna i'm curious about how that affected like your own you know relationship with the ocean since you grew up you know, wanting to be a, the fish doctor, you know, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Pecado, you know, yeah. how did that change your, your relationship with it? I mean, I think in any, you, you're speaking to like making the movie itself. No, you personally beyond, on like the actual, the act of making the movie and talking to these folks who were shark fishermen and everything else and, and seeing how our like perspectives on conservation and shark yeah, fishing yeah. and everything else, like, did that have an effect on you as like I mean, when you went out and fished? Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, to me, it's like, I think that these, I think they have the best interest in the, in the actual fisheries and, and for the sharks themselves. I think that what they're practicing, it is like, you know, certainly, you know, something from the old world that maybe doesn't jive as much with people these days, Mm -hmm. but I think they truly do have the best interest of the, of the fisheries at large. And actually, if you look at many hunters and fishermen and stuff like that, they're kind of the ones who know what the populations are like. And I think they have the biggest interest in, you know, conserving those populations because they want to protect what they do also. So I think a few bad apples in that community, like spoil it for the rest of them. But I know certainly everyone that was involved with this has the best interest of sharks and the, the whole fishing community and, you know, that, uh, those fisheries at large for sure. I'm wondering, you know, you spend so much time, you know, like you say, going back and forth, you know, being the starving artist and then, you know, working really hard on in, in the fishing industry. Um, I, I, I'm curious, like, do you still do you still enjoy like going out of the ocean? Do you still fish? I went fishing on Thursday, actually, with some <laughs> friends, with uh, the executive producer of the movie and my uh, buddy, A.B. Raymond with uh, Go Hard Fishing Charters. You guys should check him out out of all over. He's great. Huh? Um, the guy's like a, practically a marine biologist, but he's. Um, another guy who really cares about the fisheries too, who's like really also out there every day doing it. Um, yeah, I love going out there. There's something about fishing that teaches you patience, discipline. It's like, you know, this motion that you have to keep doing over and over again. I acquaint it to, if you're doing land-based stuff, sometimes even like skateboarding or graffiti or something like that. And that was some of the stuff we were trying to communicate too. Like you have these people who are doing this really like, like you were like what like you're a fisherman like that's that's what you do like you know and when we were kids like you know you jump over a fence you're not supposed to be there and like you have to have a specific rig and you're targeting a specific fish and you know you have to throw the line and present it in a certain way so i I have a whole fascination with that in itself i think it's just like there's so many lessons that fishing has taught me personally um outside of like you know i wasn't in the shark club or anything like that i just made the movie about it but just my own personal experience with fishing has taught me so much so i'm glad i could also make a film that reflects some of that too and some of the 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 bigger lessons you can learn from it right i'm curious what what interests you now like having this foray into storytelling right about things in the ocean and you tell the story of these guys that's kind of this moment in time what is interesting to you now both about the ocean and about ways to tell those stories um, I mean, the ocean at large just represents this total mystery. So I think in terms of, you know, in in terms of 
filmmaking or in terms of any art, I mean, the ocean is just fascinating on, on any level. Um, and uh, has it, has, has doing this film kind of open your, like wet your appetite in a, in a particular area? Like, what are you interested in now? Um, I mean, right now we're engaged in this guerrilla marketing campaign that I think is like in itself another art project. Cause we just did this massive 70 foot mural, um, outside of, I believe it's on 11th street. Um, right there uh, by the corner. And yeah, we did this massive uh, 70 foot mural with a big shark on it and like basically rallied our whole little arts community. All these people that I grew up with who are in different uh, art forms to, to work on that. We turned my car into what I'm calling the shark car right now. Okay. Put a fin, a three foot fin on top of it and these vinyl teeth on the side. And we have all these shark costumes. It's not just Jose over there in the studio wearing, wearing <laughs> one. We're gonna run around during shark week towards the end of the month in this van and kind of give out freebies like shirts and stickers and just talk to people about the movie. And because the, the movie's streaming now is, is like the you know Discovery Channel does their, their annual yeah, shark week. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're gonna try hurt. to piggyback on their marketing a sure, bit. But, sure. um, this is the real Shark Week this is the Miami Beach Shark Week so right. I think you want to go out there and see that and to be honest with you this is a movie that's less about sharks and more about people and I yep. think that you know, even if you're not interested in shark fishing or sharks or I mean you're seeing what Miami Beach was like back then and getting to uh, experience some of these characters and you know seeing that at large uh, is just it's going to be fascinating for people who who don't care about fishing, which I was, was assume that most people probably don't. So I think there's other things the movie has to offer. I think a lot that. of the, the Salt Life stickers on people's cars were, will, will uh, go in the opposite of that. So <laughs> tell me about this uh, the mural that you're doing. It's on 11th Street. Is it over here in downtown, 11th Street? Yeah, it's right here in downtown at 11th Street. I mean, it was just like, well, we just rallied the whole community to do that. Like I have a lot of friends in fabrication. I have friends who are painters. Um, I have a friend who's a welder who just showed up. He's like, I'm going to weld a big hook and put it in the shark's mouth. So we painted this big shark there. And it says... Is that on the corner of uh, North Miami Avenue and 11th, and 11th Street? Correct. Right. So folks can go see it now. Yeah, everyone can go out there and see it. There's a big QR code that leads you to the Instagram. So you can check out little clips from the movie. All this really cool 70s archival footage of Miami Beach and, you know, and of the film. And I mean, the whole thing with that mural is like, you know... Um, just bringing together like this whole little art collective that we grew up with. So my friends have a fabrication shop called nine and I, and you know, we, we cut out these really cool reflective letters and put them on the wall. Um, the graffiti crew, uh, get up kids, GUK, which I grew up with. They came out there and painted all night for seven days. And it was just a big labor of love that it didn't even feel like we were working. It really felt like that we were just hanging out there. And in a way it was like our own shark club. Like that's how it's manifested in my life, going to Beach High, meeting these people. These are people I know from high school. Right. So, and I, I, just to do a big art project like that with everyone is like, I get really excited by that. I like being a team player with that and, and rallying everyone. So right. it's cool. We, well, we had the artist Atomic here a couple of weeks ago. Cool. And, and like it, a lot of that, a lot of that subculture is similar, right? It's yeah. like a, it's like a getting together and creating something artistically, you know, and I, like there's a there's a connection there yeah uh, the rising tide raises all ships man and so like all of us are in like you know these kind of parallel uh art forms that are you know existing in the in the world of miami and it's just cool to to get everyone behind one thing like that like you know we've we've also i, I used to work in production design a lot too one of my other lives so i uh, doing what what did what did that mean i mean i did a lot of production design on uh and art direction on like a bunch of short films on some commercials um we built out you know the second year of the three points festival back in 2014 um bringing a school bus chopping in half bringing a cockpit from an airplane <laughs> all kinds of crazy ideas you know anything that would uh 
<laughs> that would interest us like that. So, you know, just, um, you know, basically collaging a bunch of reclaimed, uh, like airplane parts and electronics into like these like sculptures and, and, and all kinds of fun stuff like that. Do you feel like this is like a, like you're becoming a filmmaker or you feel like this is another avenue for you to tell different stories? Like you, you see yourself doing other things. Yeah. I'm really, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, if I could do anything, I just want to play music. I love playing music, but, um, it's all, it all goes into each other and film in some ways is to me the ultimate art form because it encompasses everything and it provides the the grounds to make these like really uh, creative group art projects because everyone could get in it one way or another and I would love to have it that way I mean for instance all the music in the movie is locally sourced it's all local bands I was going to say the music in the movie is all, great yeah it's all local bands it's Russell Mofsky with Gold Dust Lounge my friend Nardo Lombardo who just dropped an album with Slightly Stupid's label um, Ben Katzman Deaf Poets a lot of bands that used to play Las Rosas which is no longer open or, or right. Churchill's yeah, back Jalab in the day out of there yeah, yeah yeah so like you know it's just a, the 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 local uh music community to get them involved and like you know that was just awesome to do that too right yeah what what interesting interests you next like what is the thing that you're like all right this i'm maybe not ready to jump into it yet but i have kind of like a an idea of where i want to go from here i've been focusing a lot on writing i'm writing a lot with my producer of this film it's also my writing partner pedro gomez so uh, Pedro and I are writing this kind of like Miami political satire right now that kind of has all the characters that, you know, that you've seen and met throughout uh, <laughs> throughout the years in Miami. Maybe some of them that have been interviewed in the studio maybe, even. Maybe. So um, that's something we're working on. And then there's a number of other things. I mean, I have a feature screenplay that uh, we're shopping around right now and a couple other ones in development. So there's the film thing going on and you know we might be producing a little magazine what they call zines now oh yeah the kids, the kids, so, are, the kids yeah. are making <laughs> so lots of zines we're gonna we're probably gonna do a zine in the next couple of months and yeah just uh, uh, we'll see what comes along but uh looks like we're gonna get a little warehouse space and start you know throwing stuff on the wall and making things happen as they start from ideas and manifest into you know full-blown movies sometimes right, right. <laughs> what do you hope uh you know when people see this movie you know, this is the this is the the, the 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 current creation, right? So when you hope that people will take a look, what do you hope they take away from it when they see it? Hmm. I mean, I I hope that the movie serves as a representation of of Miami Beach and the some of the identity that has been lost over the years. That's one of the main. That was one of the big things that really, you know. Influenced to make influenced us to to take this voyage and making this film. So I really hope that in the local in the local eye that they see, you know, that they're surprised and they see that there was this whole community down there and just something totally interesting. It's like out of Southern California that you wouldn't expect in Miami Beach. So I would love that. I would also, yeah, um, I, I just want people to to watch it and and enjoy it without uh, d d don't even uh, d without any pre preconceived notion like just go in and you know if, whether you, whether you like it or not give it a watch and, and uh i think that it's really enjoyable in terms of uh yeah the, the archival footage and you know some of the narrative that we're wielding we tried to make it different from a regular like documentary film i think a lot of documentaries right now they could be made in like an ai software probably so we tried to attach our own voice to it and you know bring our own thing and so i hope people enjoy it and yeah you can watch it right now on amazon if you want <laughs> There's a there's a time capsule element to it, right? Too there's a little bit of like capturing a moment in time. Yeah. And and do you think when people finish seeing it, like, what is the what is the thing that you want them to take away, like, from that period of of Miami? 
Hmm. I mean, it just seems like it was like for me, I, I've, I've, I made it because I wanted to live it because I wanted to experience it. So I just take away a sense of like freedom and just having like, you know, those careless days when you're a kid and you just jump on a bike and knock on someone's door and, you know, see what they're doing and go run around and you have nothing to do in the day. And like, I just wanted to encapsulate that nostalgia and that, that feeling. And so Robert, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about your film, the South beach shark club. Thank you, Carlos. Appreciate it. Our guest today was Robert Requejo Ramos. His documentary, the South beach shark club tells the story of Miami beach shark fishermen in the 1970s. And that's Sundown for Monday, July 10th. Leslie Obay Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Helen Acevedo helped produce the show. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's VP of Radio and Sundow's engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program if you missed any part. Just search for WLRN Sundow on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, Miami author Ana Viciana Suarez discusses her book Dulcinea, which reimagines the Spanish classic from a woman's point of view. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only.